Welcome to the Shack 15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses, and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. In this episode, we'll join our moderator, Marcus Colombano, co-founder and partner in Pineapple, the San Francisco-based branding and design studio who are diligently guiding San Francisco's small and medium businesses to a cleaner, more thoughtfully designed future. Marcus will lead us in conversation with Todd Masonis, co-founder and CEO of Dandelion Chocolate, San Francisco's beloved small batch, single origin bean to bar chocolate factory in the Mission District, where they roast, crack, sort, winnow, grind, conch, and temper their beans before molding each bar by hand, all to bring the individual flavors to the people of the city from inside the Fair Building Marketplace. And joining Todd, we are delighted to welcome Tim Wendelbow, Shack 15's exclusive coffee supplier and founder of the eponymous Tim Wendelbow Roastery in Oslo, Norway. Tim is a world barista champion and has led his team to winning no less than eight Nordic roaster competitions. He has built his entire company ethos and operations to operate harmoniously with seasonal bean harvests around the world and works diligently to uphold stringent values in quality, transparency, and ethical sourcing, creating deeply supportive relationships with all his partner farmers and regularly publishing industry-leading transparency reports to pave the way for others to follow. Enjoy. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a really fun, exciting conversation. This is our first morning conversation. We usually have these at five o'clock in the afternoon. So nice to actually kind of start off the day with actually a very appropriate conversation about coffee and chocolate. And then this is also our first kind of split conversation. Tim is based in Oslo and is in Norway as we speak. And Todd is in San Francisco. And so we've got a kind of cross-continent conversation going. And so uh, welcome, Tim and Todd. Thanks for joining us this morning. I'd love, I mean, I think the, a great way to start, and I think everybody's interested, is how did you guys start your businesses? What was your key idea? What was the inspiration? And how did you guys get started? Tim, <laughs> you, you start off. Okay, it's, uh, it's actually quite a long story, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I started actually working in a coffee shop when I was 19 years old, uh, just finishing high school, and uh, I didn't really want to go to university or go to the military, which was kind of my two options. And then actually by coincidence, I got the only job that I could find, which was in a coffee shop, and this was in 1998, and in 98, the coffee shop scene in Oslo was brand new. Uh, we had, I think, four coffee shops. And it was kind of the new wave of coffee shops based on the Starbucks model, I guess. And then quickly after I started working there, I was kind of encouraged to take responsibility of running that store. I was pushed into competing in the barista competitions and found that very amusing and uh, did quite well. After a couple of years, I won the world championship. And when you win a world championship, you get offered a lot of opportunities to travel and, and to learn. And uh, I quickly kind of realized that I was working then, this was in 2004, I was running six coffee shops for the chain that I worked for and was kind of doing more or less the same things every day. I was training new baristas, head of quality control, and I kind of needed a bigger challenge and wanted to progress more. So I felt mature enough to be able to run my own company and my own coffee shop. And um, it took me about two years to kind of figure out how the model of it, you know, opening a roastery came naturally because I wanted to 
be in control of the quality that I served and and I, I kind of needed a space, a playground, so to say. So that's why, why the coffee shop also kind of became that playground. So you can say that it was a coincidence, but it was also kind of by choice because I didn't want to do the traditional way of going to university, getting an education in something and becoming that profession. I realized that I had to kind of work my way up on my own and kind of jumped on any opportunity I could get and couple of years later I figured you know now I can make my own future by making my own company so I started my company in 2007 and and I've never looked back <laughs> nice Todd what's your what's yeah. your origin story sure so I'd say with Dandelion it was not a company where we set off and looked at the market opportunity and pulled up an Excel spreadsheet and said, there's a huge opportunity and let's, you know, capture it. Happened quite a bit more organically. So I kind of in a previous life, when I had graduated college, some friends of mine and I started an internet startup called Plaxo. Um, This was all the way back in 2001. So a long time ago. And, you know, you don't hear about it now, but back then it was kind of like a precursor to social networking. We were kind of like one of the first companies to try to get your offline contacts online and do a bunch of viral marketing. And so we worked on that for years, sold it in 2008, and I stayed with the acquiring company until 2009. And so like any sort of normal startup journey, um, you have a lot of ups and downs, but you don't have any free nights or weekends or any spare time, you know, everything goes into the company. And so at that point, I took a little bit of time off and I just thought I was going to be relaxed and, you know, pursue some hobbies and pursue things that I, you know, didn't get to do when I was just working 24-7. So I'd always been really interested in chocolate not necessarily a chocolate connoisseur, more just like a chocolate eater, a chocolate enthusiast. And around that time, I'd kind of read about and experimented with making chocolate at home. And when I say chocolate at home, sometimes people think about like, oh, like, you know, taking some cocoa powder and mixing it in. Or when I talk about home, I mean from the bean. So actually getting beans, roasting them up. And at that time, there were only a, a couple of companies, small companies making chocolate from the bean at a small scale. Almost all the world's chocolate is big industrial chocolate. The big companies make it. All the chocolatiers buy chocolate and make chocolates, but no one was really making chocolate from the bean. So there's kind of a community of enthusiasts who were interested in seeing if it was possible to make chocolate at home. And so my friend and I, we took over uh, another friend's garage and we started trying to start a small scale chocolate factory just to, to see if it was possible. You know, we got some beans off of the internet. You know, the UPS guy showed up with a giant sack of beans and we started roasting them up. And then we had to figure out how to build our own machines because a lot of these machines didn't exist because no one, you know, this had been figured out hundreds of years ago and been industrialized. No one was trying to do home chocolate making. And again, there was this community online. So like we would, uh, you know, we would build some improvements to a machine and we'd post photos and then people would say, oh, have you tried this? And it's literally like we'd need a, a vibratory uh, feeder and we'd go to Brookstones and we'd buy a vibrating massager and we'd duct tape it to the pipes and it would shake the, the tubes. And it was very much DIY, is this possible? So we started this, this tiny little chocolate factory in a friend's garage, you know, made our first couple bars of chocolate and our friends and family were very surprised. They were just like, wow, this doesn't taste like normal industrial chocolate. And the, the reason for that is, you know, most chocolate, to be a chocolate bar in America, you only need to have about 10% cocoa beans. So you eat a, you know, a normal chocolate bar doesn't necessarily have any real chocolate in it. Um, in our case, we were just making it as simply and as purely as we could. So just beans and sugar. So two ingredient chocolate, cocoa beans, sugar, that's it no added cocoa butter, vanilla, lecithin, no other flavorings, no other additives, no other stabilizers, literally just the cocoa bean. And we were starting with such good beans that 
you don't need to hide them. You don't need to burn them. You don't need to mask them. You know, we started this little sort of hobby project and our friends and family said, wow, this is amazing. It doesn't taste like Hershey's. And so they encouraged us to take it to farmer's markets. And we said, okay, we'll, we'll try this. And it's one thing your friends, for your friends and family to say encouraging words. It's another thing for strangers to open their wallets. And that's what happened. We went to the first market. Actually, San Francisco used to have the underground market, which was kind of a legal farmer's market where um, everyone would have to sign a waiver acknowledging that they understood the risks of death of eating uncertified food. So we took our chocolate bars there and we sold out the first day. I mean, we didn't have much chocolate, but we sold out and we realized, wow, there really is something there. And so now we know that we're actually part of this sort of new wave of chocolate. And so we kind of were at the kind of at the right place, the right time. And so we said, hey, well, let's do something with this. And so we built a little factory on Valencia Street. We put a little cafe on in the front, but we thought no one was going to visit. So we would just once a day, you know, make a couple of hot chocolates and we opened the doors and we were overwhelmed with demand. So we just kind of uh, kept growing it day by day. I think that's really cool that a coffee seems like it's simpler to roast and produce an end product and chocolate is a lot more complex. How did you guys get over that huge barrier? Well, so I think in our case, that was part of the fun was that there weren't very many people doing this. It was difficult. We had to learn, you know, San Francisco used to have the tech shop. So we had to go and take classes on how to do machining and, you know, 3D modeling. And so it was like very much um, a challenge. I think what's interesting is, you know, I'd mentioned we started, there was maybe only 10 small companies making chocolate from the bean because it really was super difficult. And um, now the barriers to entry have gone way down. I think there are over 200 small makers in America now. So it's going through this huge explosion of new small artisan craft chocolate makers. And I think what's been really nice is now if you want to get started making chocolate in your home kitchen, there's really only one piece of machinery you need to buy, a mini melanger, and it's about $200. You can buy it off of Amazon. Everything else you can do with your oven or you can do by hand or you can hand shell the beans. And like, you know, we wrote a book and or there are other resources online where you can learn about actually go through the steps. And so I actually think, you know, we've introduced a lot of people into making chocolate at home and, you know, it maybe it's a little bit more complicated than, you know, making bread or something, but it's definitely gotten to the point where if you wanted to start, you know, next weekend, get a mini melanger and make your own single origin varietal of chocolate, you could totally do that. Um, and it's, it's pretty cool. And so I think as the barriers to entry have gone down and down and down, you're seeing more explosions in creativity of different makers trying different things and different roasts and different possibilities and different inclusions. And so it's kind of a really exciting time for chocolate because, you know, 20 years ago, it might have cost, you know, $10 million to start a company to make chocolate. And now it's like, you could start tomorrow. So I think we're going to see a lot more um, cool things coming out of this, this part of the industry. I mean, on the flip side, Tim, I think what's interesting about coffee is that you guys spend um, all your time sourcing coffee, roasting it. And then other than people coming to your, to your cafe to to partake in the coffee that you produce, they take it home and it's left to them to brew. And there's so many ways to brew coffee and it's so dependent on personal taste. It's so dependent on process they have. Can you talk a little bit about your approach? I mean, both of you guys have this educational component to your customers and helping them better um, appreciate or experience your product. Can you talk a little bit about home brewing and how important that is to your business and the education part of that? Yeah, I think, you know, the market in Norway is, is very unique in that sense because uh, people are used to making coffee at home. I guess that's a big thing in the U.S. as well. But uh, many other countries, coffee is mainly consumed in cafes. 
uh, especially if you go south in Europe. For me, you know, uh, making great coffee is quite easy, but it's, it's so rare to get a delicious brew coffee when you visit some people. And people tend to screw it up, although it's so simple to make good coffee. And I think, you know, uh, it's, it's a matter of educating uh, the consumer for sure. I think a lot of people just don't have the knowledge in order to make a good cup of coffee. And to, just to get started, you need very good quality water, which we have in abundance here in Norway. But if you go to Copenhagen, for instance, the water is terrible for making coffee because there's so much calcium in it. So you can take any coffee and it will taste terrible. So you kind of need to remove that, those minerals from the water in order to succeed. And a lot of people still today in the, in, in the professional industry, a lot of people don't realize how important water is. And then second of all, of course, you need to have very high quality coffee beans. And that is freshly roasted, you know. Yeah, it's okay to like very dark roasted coffee beans, but you are going to miss out on a lot of flavors that are naturally in the coffee bean. You're going to get more of the roasty flavors. If you choose a lighter roast, which we started with quite early, uh, our roast style is kind of famous for being very light. You know, a lot of people had to get used to just the roasting style before they could even assess whether the coffee was nice or not. They were like, oh, this doesn't taste like coffee. It tastes like tea. You know, I can taste fruit. It's not supposed to taste like this. And that's exactly what we wanted to taste in our coffee because we could taste that when we bought the coffee in, 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 at Origin. We could taste those flavors. And of course, we wanted to have those flavors in the cup when we drank the coffee at home as well. But then if you, if you kind of, today it's much easier because you can go on YouTube and look at brewing guides and it's very easy to access very high quality coffee beans that are roasted well. Uh, 10 years ago, it was much more difficult. So you come a long way, but still today, you know, I, I, I use a lot of my time uh, making videos online and training videos, you know, for end consumers, because if I teach them how to make delicious cup of coffee, it's more likely that they will come to me, you know, eventually and try my coffee. And it's so simple. It's just uh, those simple rules, the basics, people tend to forget them, like just measuring out how many grams of coffee you use for a liter of water. You know, it's so simple, but people just use a spoon and they don't think about it. They, they count the spoons and, you know, a spoon of coffee is, doesn't weigh the same depending on the spoon size and the coffee itself and so on. So um, for me, it's always been important ever since I started working in coffee because when I started in 98, it was a brand new thing, like the, the coffee shop culture and the focus on quality coffee was kind of uh, not new, but it had its renaissance, I guess. And um, people didn't understand why should they pay more for this coffee? You know, it doesn't taste that much different. But today, of course, it tastes very different from, from the industrial coffee. Back then, it was a little different because we couldn't access those high-quality beans as much. But um, for me, it's always been uh, very important to educate my customers because it, I can see the results. They come back and it almost becomes like a cult. Like once you have discovered that fantastic, what, how fantastic coffee flavor can be, it's really difficult to go back to the supermarket and choose, you know, an industrialized produced uh, coffee. It's, it's really, really yeah. difficult. So. so Todd, I mean, I think that for your customer, the, the enjoyment of the product is so much more accessible, so much easier. They can take a bar home or a couple of bars home and immediately kind of taste the differences in a much more controlled environment. Of course, I'm, I'm ignoring the idea of cooking with chocolate, 
But I think what's interesting, and I think both of you guys do it really, really well, describing the flavor profile, but it's more of a kind of like, I, I can go home with this bar. It's almost like watching a movie. I open it up and I can actually really taste the locale and the different flavors. I mean, we just tasted a whole range of your new product, but tasted just the distinct differences. How do you, how do you guys set your customers up for the appreciation of your, your chocolates and the differences? I think, um, I think for us, education and experience has been a big part of the company from the very first day, even from the farmer's markets. And that's why we wanted to build our own factory and not a factory that's locked down that you can't visit, but a factory where you can come in. I mean, not so much right now with COVID, but in general, you could come in, you could get a hot chocolate, you could sit there and watch the whole process. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that's important. Um, one is, you know, we make a bunch of different chocolate bars with all different flavor notes and profiles. And they are all very different. Some, some are very polarizing. Some people love some of the bars, some people hate the bars. And so what we do is we just have them all available to taste. And, you know, you can go through this sort of exploration of chocolate, find the one you like and bring that one home. Um, or, you know, we've done a lot of chocolate classes. So I would say the most common interaction I saw at Valencia Street is someone would walk into our cafe, they would kind of smell the, the roasting and be very confused and leave. That was actually usually people's first uh, reaction was to be confused and leave. But what we noticed over time is that people would come back a second time and they'd buy a cookie and then a third time. Then they'd realize we do tours and then we do classes on tasting. We do classes on basically all the ingredients that go into chocolate and different chocolate bars. We do origin stories. I um, mean, we actually do trips to origin. So we've actually had people come into our factory who really just saw the signed chocolate, just wanted a cookie who now have gone on three or four trips to origin with us and have become sort of chocolate ambassadors and kind of helped explain the story. And so I think just having our chocolate available to taste and kind of telling the story is what really allows us to, I don't know, get people to understand why it's different. Because I think if you just looked on a store shelf, you would say our chocolate's very expensive and you, know, you can write whatever you want on the package. But if you come in, you take a tour in a class, you'd say, oh, I understand why this is different, why it's special and why I might want to pay more for it. So that's kind of part of our whole educational mission is to make sure we explain what's so different about our chocolate and, you know, and hope that people then um, like our chocolate and want to buy it once they know the difference. A number of questions that come up for both of you is probably origin of your coffees. I think it's fascinating. And I, was, I did a bunch of research before we sat down to talk. I think it's fascinating when you take a look at like the origin origin of chocolate and the origin origin of coffee and how parallel it is and how opposite it is at the same time. Both of your products are grown in remote places, remote in perspective to who we are and where we're from. And you ship the beans to your locale and you produce the product there but there's so much that comes into play from where that, that bean is grown, right? There is both, you know, there's, there's this nature, the genetic uh, component of the bean. There's the nurture, the way it's grown, where it's grown, how it's pre-processed. And then there's the processing um, at your end. And I'd love you guys to both kind of talk a little bit about your philosophy of working with your producers and your unique take on processing that end product. Tim, can, can you start off? All right, I'd like to start in the other end actually, because when I, when I started my company, um, I kind of started roasting uh, uh, almost every day. And 
I, you know, I had been spending most of my early career trying to perfect how to make espresso and kind of thought I had succeeded. And then when I started roasting, I realized, you know, my espresso can taste really good or it can taste really bad depending on how I roast. So I started digging into roasting. And then the more we kind of tested with the roasting process, we realized, you know, the coffee doesn't get, it's, it's hard to get it to taste any better. And sometimes it would taste terrible regardless how we would roast it or brew it. So then I realized, you know, uh, it's my suppliers, you know, I have to get better green coffee. And back then it was really difficult. There was not many importers to contact to get the highest quality coffees you could buy on, on uh, online auctions like the Capo Excellence, for instance. So I kind of started doing that and I realized, you know, uh, sometimes you could buy really delicious coffee because you get sent a sample and then three months later when the coffee actually arrives to Norway, it would taste terrible uh, because something had happened on the way from the origin to Norway in a container which nobody knows what happened, you know. So then I started traveling and visiting farms to, to kind of learn and understand why certain coffees tasted so much better than others and why certain coffees tended to stay fresh, like uh, taste fresher for longer than other coffees that would fade and taste woody, you know, after a couple of weeks. And when I say woody, that's a very negative defect in coffee. Like it, it's, it's a sign of age in a negative way. So when I started, you know, visiting farms and, and origins and tasting coffees, I also realized that a lot of times I could taste great coffee, but it would rarely be from the same farmer from year to year. And uh, so I quickly realized, you know, if I, if I want to have a really high quality, um, consistent product, I would have to work closely with the producers. Because when, you, when I visited and, and, and saw some of the farms that were producing really high quality coffee, you know, their infrastructure was next to nothing. They would ferment in wood barrels that, you know, were hard to clean. Uh, their drying conditions were terrible. It was raining. So I kind of spent a lot of time trying to find good partners that wanted to learn and wanted to improve and produce high quality and kind of committed to working with them uh, long-term. Um, of course, it's not something you say, let's work long-term, but it's kind of, you find the right people you want to work with and you try to progress together with them and figure out, you know, how to perfect and do good quality control at farm level. And, you know, some, some of the examples uh, I can give is, is, it seems so easy for us to say, let's, uh, you know, just clean the wet mill where they process the coffee. Let's buy a, you know, pressure washer that you clean your cars with. And then you bring that to the farm. And then when you plug it into the wall, the, all the electricity disappears because they only have one fuse for the whole farm. And then once you kind of solve that problem, uh, the machine breaks because there's too many particles in the water. So, and there's no water filtration. So the machine breaks down. So there's all these kind of uh, uh, challenging uh, ways. Uh, and you have to be very, very creative sometimes and, and kind of customize a system for each farm that works in that environment for that coffee with that farmer, with the workforce they have and so on. But uh, I have to say that this year has been actually the year where I've seen the results of all the work that I've done for the past 10 years together with the farmers, because I used to go and travel to all the farms every year to kind of look at the farms and select the coffees and talk. And this year, because of COVID, I couldn't travel, but they would still be able to send me, you know, beautiful samples of very consistent, high quality coffees. And that kind of relationship is strong. We communicate through uh, or online and, you know, there's no need for me to go there anymore. They know what to do and they know what I want. So, 
that's kind of a, that was actually the initial plan to kind of try to create those strong relationships to make my job easier. And then once I have extremely high quality raw material, it makes the job as a roaster and a barista much, much easier. You know, it's, you can fail in the roaster and fail at brewing and the coffee will still taste pretty good. That's the, that's a good thing about it. Um, Todd, what's, uh, you know, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think it's pretty similar. Um, so if I understand the question, it's basically, you know, the, you know, the origin and the importance of origin and, you know, is it the nature versus nurture? And, you know, there's a, there's a joke in the craft chocolate world. Um, it's not a very good joke, but it's uh, what's the most important step in chocolate making. And the joke is that they're all the most important steps because you can mess up anywhere along the way. So we kind of view it as we need to get really good beans and then we need to figure out how to coax the flavors out of it. And, you know, we could burn them. There's, there's all sorts of things we could do to make bad chocolate. Like you can take good beans and make bad chocolate, but you're never going to make good chocolate from bad beans. So we kind of have to do everything right. And so a lot of that's on our end about all the taste tests we do and all the roasts we do and all the experiments. Um, but really on the farm, we also need to have really good beans. And, you know, when we first started visiting farms, we were very surprised that the, the producers told us that we were some of the first people to come and visit them. Um, and we're like, well, that's crazy because there's so many chocolate producers in the world and huge ones. And they said, but it's all just a commodity market. So normal chocolate commodity market is just, it's all just junk beans. There's no, there's no reason to, to get better quality or better fermentation, or they're all just going to get mixed together. There's no, it doesn't matter if they're diseased. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're moldy because the way you make industrial chocolate is you get a bunch of beans and you essentially burn them till they just kind of taste kind of like, you know, chocolatey or burnt. And then you add a lot of things to them like sugar and milk and other flavors until you don't taste it. And it's kind of this miracle of industrialization that you can open a Hershey's chocolate bar and it tastes exactly the same wherever you go. Like that's actually a huge like miracle. Um, but it's, it's kind of, it's very different than the fact that chocolate can have so much flavor complexity. Um, it's up there with wine and coffee, but for the last 50, 100 years, that was seen as a defect that needed to be gotten rid of in order to have a consistent and low cost product. So we kind of had to start from square one and say, okay, who are some producers that we can work with who care about the beans, care about the fermentation, um, and can get us really great um, raw material that we then can be very careful about getting those interesting flavors to come out of. And in our case, it's really about preserving them and keeping them pretty pure. So it really is much more um, like wine in that regard. And so, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, is it, is it genetics? Is it uh, fermentation? I think you wanna start with good genetics. You wanna start with interesting genetics. You wanna start with good inherent flavor. Um, but certainly fermentation is a huge flavor driver. Uh, drying of the beans is a huge flavor driver. And then when we get the beans roasting and all the different experiments, you know, we do at least a month of taste tests and roasts um, and sort of A-B tests to figure out how we want to roast a bunch of beans. Um, and then all of the steps sort of downstream from there um, are all going to contribute to the chocolate. And, you know, I think the thing that's most interesting, though, is sometimes we have origins or taste tests or, or roasts where um, we do a couple different batches that actually all taste really good. Um, but are very different. And then we have to apply what is our philosophical idea about how we feel about this bean um, versus just like, it's easy, which is like, oh, this one is good when it's a high roast and bad when it's low roast. It's like, we actually have to think about like, what are our values and what do we want, what do we want for this chocolate? And so um, it's just a, a really interesting process where you kind of have to do everything right. And so that's kind of our whole, our whole philosophy. I mean, I, I, in taking a look at kind of the origins of, of, of coffee, and chocolate 
and taking a look at uh, kind of genetic diversity is kind of one part of this whole mix, of course. I think one of the big eye-openers for me was what a role uh, fermentation plays in both products. And I don't think a lot of people who drink coffee or eat chocolate think of it as a fermented product, but a large part of the pre-processing of, of, the, of the coffee and of the chocolate is fermentation at the source. And a lot of the different types of yeasts that are involved in the different locales play, play very much into the flavor profile of the end product. But you know, getting, kind of, getting back to genetics and the origin of that, it's really interesting to see that uh, kind of origins of genetic diversity, you know, you take a look at coffee, there's not a lot of genetic diversity in the majority of the world's coffee that's produced. 95% of the diversity actually is still in Ethiopia. And it seems like it's untapped as a source um, because a lot of it is heirloom and wild coffee. Chocolate seems to be a little bit more diverse and it's, but I, I still think it's crazy that the, the major producers are so distant from the centers of diversity. Um, uh, you, you know, uh, chocolate's diversity is centered in the upper, upper Brazil, Amazon, Colombia, Venezuela borders. Do you guys have a favorite locale that you like your coffee slash chocolate to come from? Is it more, I mean, is it more producer? Is it more terroir in terms of where it's produced and, and the beans being used? You know, I think uh, it's a, quite a big consensus in coffee that the biggest diversity of flavors and, uh, and kind of the most preferred origin is Ethiopia, where coffee originates from. And uh, I've, I've just started tapping into Ethiopia as an origin because it's been quite a challenge for a small roaster to go there and just buy directly and so on. So each micro region, even in a small little micro region, you can find extreme diversity in, in, terms, of, in terms of flavor. Uh, a lot of the coffees are produced in like cooperative, in cooperative models. So a lot of them get, do get mixed together, but they still taste fantastic. Also, there has been governmental programs there where they have released kind of good varieties or improved varieties and released them to a lot of farmers. So you can go to other areas where a lot of them are growing the same type of varieties. So uh, for me, it's an extremely interesting origin. And uh, most of the coffees, you know, even uh, like a, a clean commercial coffee can taste fantastic there, you know. I also, I mean, I think that one of the things that uh, I ran into, and I think that this is very important for the coffee industry, is that because of the single, the, the very limited genetic diversity of the, the world's major produced coffees, pests, disease, weather, are, affect the crop Lot, really yeah. harshly and yeah. this genetic diversity is a really important part of the future of coffee yeah and, and there are programs now that are uh, really trying to protect coffee from going extinct and uh, and uh, world coffee research is one of them which uh, it's a u.s uh, based project where they are planting different varieties in different countries to and trying to develop new varieties but uh, you know as as a small coffee roaster i'm trying to do my own kind of work with that and uh, like I have my own farm where we're trying to do biological farming because I think that's part of the solution to getting rid of diseases like leaf rust and so on. And also we're trying to source seeds in every country that we, that I visit. We try to get seeds from other farmers and we plant them on farms that we work with. Um, for instance, in Colombia, I just received over 70 samples uh, two weeks ago and 20 of them were new varieties that we had planted on the farm. 
uh, that we had never tasted before. And it was the first kind of picking to see, you know, if there's something new and unique here that we can grow that is better than what is normally growing and that are more resistant and so on. So, you know, the coffee world has discovered varieties probably 10 years ago or 2004 maybe, because um, that's when the famous farm, I think, uh, no, Hacienda La Esmeralda in Panama, uh, put their famous geisha coffee in, in the best of Panama auction and you know blew everyone's mind everyone's minds away and it, for good reason it's a fantastic coffee but you can get that kind of same flavor profile you know just by chance in Ethiopia most of those coffees have similar flavor profiles very kind of exotic uh, florals like jasmine and, and citric flavors but the, that's a very good example of uh, now the industry is kind of realizing the value of varieties, which we didn't just 15 years ago. We, we, we didn't really think about it at all, actually. Hey, Todd, what's, what's it like for you? What's your favorite origin? And how are people leveraging different varietals for different flavors? I think it's a good question. I think it's a very similar answer to Tim's, which is like clearly genetic diversity, terroir, that's all very important. Um, for us, we're looking for producers that we can work well with. You know, we've had producers who um, we were very interested in, but we weren't in love with their fermentation, but we connected them to our friends who are fermentation consultants, and now they make really great beans. And so we're kind of looking at the whole thing, which is the genetics, but what's the flavor? You know, are we able to get the supply consistently? Um, but I do think this is a bigger issue in the wider chocolate world, which is, um, I don't know if you heard of this, uh, this varietal called CCN51, which is, some people call it the Darth Vader of cacao. And the idea is that it is a, or in origin that, you know, tastes fine, um, or sort of varietal that tastes fine, but is very, very productive. You know, if you convince a farmer to plant this, they can get three or four times the yield. And the worry is, you know, you go to Central and South America and these farmers replace all of their old sort of heirloom interesting genetics with something that is three to four times more productive. They're just going to make that much more money. And since it's all commodity and no one cares about the quality or the genetics, um, unless we are paying three or four times, you know, the commodity price and often we're paying two or three times, it's a better deal for them to get rid of the existing sort of heirloom genetics than it is to just, you know, make more money in the commodities market. So I think the best thing we can do for the chocolate world is to get more people interested in really good chocolate, really good diversity, really good flavors, um, get more craft chocolate makers out there, get people paying more for chocolate, getting companies like us to pay more for beans, and then we actually have a sustainable system for making sure that we keep these, these varietals there. Um, whereas, you know, the alternative is really just like, there's just one type of, you know, junk chocolate that just the one that everyone uses. And, um, and it's, it's a very sort of a very different world than the world we want to live in. So, um, so yeah, I would say that uh, genetics is super important and terroir is important, but uh, producers and like sort of the, the global sort of market economics are also important. Just thinking about where we want this to net out. You know, I'll, you know, we, we kind of started this conversation off with from this perspective that at the end, you guys have a passion about making an, an amazing product, but it, I mean, it doesn't just sit there by itself. You have to have a, a customer who picks it up and enjoys it. And I think you, from both of you, I, I get this feeling that you have a really deep passion for communicating your vision for your product and educating them. Um, on how to experience it and get the most out of it. Um, the last six months has been insane because we've been distanced from our customers. 
we everything's done virtually. And so much of what both of you do is physical, is uh, tactile and tangible. And you started your business doing it with your customers in front of your customers. How has the last six months changed your business? Um, what have you had to do to keep your business successful and keep engaged with your customer? Todd? Yeah, well, certainly um, it's been a challenge. That's for sure. You know, our whole business was uh, primarily a sort of experiential retail business. You come in, you learn about chocolate, you could taste chocolate. Um, we mostly sold direct. We did some wholesale, but mostly direct. So, I mean, we saw our retail revenue go, I mean, well, in April to zero and then down about 80%. Um, but we have actually, for the year, we're only down about 10%, mostly because we've made a pretty big shift to online um, and even virtual classes. So one of the kind of the more, one of the growing areas of our business is actually taking all of the chocolate education and putting it in a box and letting people, you know, do a virtual class. Or we get also a lot of like corporate offsites where a lot of people are stuck at home right now and they still want to learn and they still want to taste. And so, and we still have teachers and people who are very passionate about, about chocolate. Um, we've just had to find more creative ways to make that happen. So um, yeah, so it's definitely a big change and it's, you know, not what we'd planned for. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff we need to do to make sure that we continue to exist as a business just because this was, you know, uh, this was not in our business plan. Um, but, uh, you know, we kind of managed to, to work through it and uh, we're looking forward to kind of getting on the other side of it. Tim, well, how's it, how's it gone for you? I mean, I think maybe, I mean, there's the bean business and then there's the cafe business. And I know that things are different in Scandinavia than they are in the United States in terms of being more open um, yeah. and social interaction. But how's the last six months um, changed for you? Well, uh, the beginning was uh, tough because we had to close down the cafe for, you know, uh, I think it was six weeks and then we could slowly start opening up just selling beans but no drinks um, which was kind of uh, okay for us a lot of Norwegians especially in Oslo they love to, to buy good coffee so we were able to just have open two days a week and we could still sell the same amount of coffee that we normally would do during a whole week so uh, I think the hardest part was to tell my staff that I didn't have a job for them you know um, uh, and it, it was kind of, I didn't know for how long, but uh, fortunately the government were supporting the businesses and also the workers. So everyone got, you know, paid uh, their salary from the government for, I think, six months. Now we're kind of back in business, but our wholesale is for sure down. Although most of the restaurants are open again, we're, they're not, you know, able to have as many guests inside anymore. So I think our wholesale is down about 30, 40%. Uh, but we, we did increase our online sales a lot, especially in the beginning. And we have been focusing a lot during the last two years on our webpage because we, we kind of just launched a new webpage a couple of weeks before a corona outbreak here in Norway. And of course, there's a lot of bug fixing, but uh, we, we kind of had a, a strong team uh, working on that. And I had to, you know, stop traveling and I stepped in as as the customer service guy answering emails together with my team. And we put a lot more focus on that and, uh, and also producing online content, you know, how to brew coffee at home, uh, stuff like that to kind of help people get tasty coffee at home as well. So I, I, I would say it's been challenging, but it's also been quite refreshing because I've had to kind of look at my business uh, again and see, you know, what is our core business and 
what are we supposed to focus on and what actually generates revenue and work a good workspace for our, our team and and uh, so I think we'll be stronger after this period uh, to be honest and rather than just focusing on doing everything you want to do you, you kind of we're focusing more on our core business and trying to grow that yeah reaching we want to reach out more to end consumers rather than businesses and and uh, we're kind of getting more ideas on how to be successful at that because it's such, so measurable now. If, if you don't succeed, you will see it immediately on their sales. Whereas before, you know, we, we could always lean on the wholesale and say, you know, we're, we're, we'll sell volume anyway, so it doesn't matter. I think it's time to get into some questions. You guys ready for some questions? Yeah, great. Uh, yeah. Cool. Um, so I think that, you know, the first question that comes up, and I think, uh, uh, Tim, you brought this up, Water is a very important part of making uh, good coffee. Um, what do you What do you suggest for people for finding good water? Um, like, for example, in Copenhagen, what's their solution um, for somebody who's making day to day coffee and who's not just putting in a machine? I mean, of course, their water filtration systems and things of that sort. I think the the easiest way, if you if you struggle with a lot of calcium in your water, I mean, it's not just for coffee, but you're gonna break your water boilers and machines and everything. So uh, a reverse osmosis filter will remove most of it. Uh, so that's kind of uh, an ideal situation, but uh, you don't want like pure distilled water either, because then the coffee is gonna taste very very hollow and strange. Even your tea will be affected by this. So. Uh, you could buy mineral water, like bottled water, with with low mineral content. Like you could see how many milligrams per liter or parts per million. So it's below like 150 or 100. That's pretty ideal. But you know, most most cities, like in uh, Norway, where you use surface water, the water is quite soft anyway. Um, but chlorine can make a very strange flavor in coffee. So you want to filtrate it with some carbon or something. Or uh, you can also buy very cheap test kits in an aquarium store and just test your water to see if you have a problem at all. And most uh, cities will have this data on, on some kind of website, what, what kind of mineral content you have in your water. But in my experience, the lower, the better uh, until it's like distilled, then it's, you know, not very good for coffee. You need some minerals there. Hey Todd, what's your guys take on water? I mean, it's not important for the end consumer um, unless they're making cocoa, for example, with water. Uh, but in terms of your production, how do you treat your water in the production of your product? Um, I mean, honestly, we don't use a lot of water in, uh, in chocolate making because water is kind of the enemy of chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we use it for you know, water jacketing and things like that. So uh, it's more of a machine thing for us. Um, certainly like in our, our hot chocolates, uh, but most of our hot chocolates are milk-based. So it's not, water is not like a big, a big thing we worry about in terms of uh, the long list of stuff that's not, it's not on our list as much. Tim, back at you. Um, what do you think is the best household machine, kind of this combination of making <laughs> the best coffee versus kind of ease of use? In my own kitchen, you know, the, the most important uh, piece of equipment is a grinder, like a good burr grinder that you can adjust. That's priority number one. And so mm. then you can buy whole beans, you know, and the, the flavors are kind of trapped inside the beans much better than if you buy pre-ground coffee. So that's number one. And uh, number two, you know, uh, I just use an automatic filter coffee maker, like a drip machine in my kitchen, because it's easy. You just 
pour some water in and push the button and that's it. You just have to measure up, you know, you need a fair scale so you can measure up how many grams or ounces or whatever you, what measurement you prefer. The trend of making a coffee by hand, like we call it hand brewing, it's, it's very easy. You don't really need any fancy equipment. You just need a kettle and some kind of filter holder and a paper filter and that's it. So I would suggest, you know, go to brewmethods.com. Uh, it's a great resource of where you can see, you know, hundreds of different brewing videos on how to brew. And uh, then you can kind of see what kind of brewing method fits your, your lifestyle. Because I realize, you know, some people love espresso, some people hate espresso, some people like to make, spend 30 minutes making their coffee. I personally like to spend as little time as possible making coffee and more time drinking it. So that's why I go for like an automatic filter making. But, but it has to be a good quality one that has a high temperature water. So in Norway, we have like the Techniworm, which is a classic one. And we have a Norwegian brand called Wilfa that I work with that's also very good. But there are other brands as well. Todd, I'm going to go kind of start the next question off with you because I think that a lot of people, people are used to coffee being from different locations. And I think that a lot of people think of chocolate as being from South and Central America. Uh, Vietnam is becoming uh, a more important producer or, or a producer on the mar- in the market for both coffee and chocolate. Um, what are your, both of your perspective, but Todd, you first, what is your perspective on Vietnamese produced uh, beans, cocoa beans? Yeah, sure. And even before that, just, uh, you know, just your point about where people think chocolate comes from. Most people, when you ask chocolate, like, where's the best chocolate come from? They also say Belgium. And it's, it's funny, I've actually been on chocolate tours where, where people ask, like, so, like, where in Belgium do you get beans or grow the beans? And so I think there's a big disconnect between the chocolate maker and the producer. And we're still trying to educate people just on like, it actually comes from a bean from different countries. And so um, uh, for Vietnamese uh, chocolate in particular, yeah, it's pretty interesting. There's a really, um, a really good producer called Maru, who has kind of been the, the sort of top sort of Vietnamese producer um, in making chocolate from Vietnamese beans. And if you haven't tried their chocolate, I highly recommend it. They've got some really interesting bars and flavors. Um, and in fact, we um, got some beans from them. We have Ventre beans, and it makes a really awesome chocolate bar. Um, and we'd like to buy more. We'd like to buy more Urgens, but I think they, they can only do so much. So um, uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty interesting origin. Um, and it's just really nice that there's a really cool company that's also helping spearhead that effort. Very cool. Um, I, I was also noticing that Java is, is a producer as well. Is, is that new or um, has that been around for a while? Um, for chocolate, um, yeah. it's not, not really a bean that we've used a lot. Uh, you know, that's not one of our main, or hasn't been a big uh, mainstay for us, but we, we have a guy named Greg, who's our bean, uh, our chief sourcing officer, and he's just going around the world. Well, not so much right now, but in general, he's just always on the lookout for where can we get interesting beans? And, um, and also once we get some good beans, like, can we get enough of them or can we get them consistently or how will they taste year to year? So um, but traditionally, we've gotten most of our chocolate from Central and South America and a little bit of Africa. Okay. Hey, hey, Tim, I've, what's your perspective? Have you guys experimented with uh, Vietnamese sourced coffee? No, I have to say not so much because uh, the majority of that coffee is uh, Robusta, which is a different species of coffee. And, you know, it, in, in best case, it tastes like... Uh, 
Kellogg's Max uh, honey corn. <laughs> but it, it can taste uh, a lot like burnt popcorn. You know, when you make popcorn at home, you have the kind of corn that didn't pop and got burnt. For me, it has this kind of rubbery burnt flavor quite a lot. But uh, I know that there are some high quality producers in Vietnam, but they're not the majority for sure. And for me, uh, there's just so many other origins that I would have on top of my list before I went to Vietnam. I would go to Vietnam for food, I think, <laughs> rather than coffee. But, uh, <laughs> it would be very interesting to go there and check it out, actually, because I know that they don't just produce Robusta, although that's what they're famous for. They do have some high quality coffee as well. So Adam asks, in the world of wine, we very much celebrate microlocation, vineyard, winemaking, in addition to varietal production brand, and in some cases, the farmer. There seems to be parallels in coffee and chocolate, but will we ever get to the point where the farmer and or plantation will be lauded in the same extent as the end producer brand? And how does this relate to fair trade? I think, so I think I see three, three separate questions in here. So I think the first one is really around kind of like the vineyard. Um, and there is such a thing as origin chocolate where some farmers are actually now um, getting into business of making their own chocolate um, on their own farms which is pretty interesting. And I hope that's a trend that continues. And that would be pretty awesome where, especially someday, like maybe there's like farm tours with, you know, and it's much more like the vineyard model right now. It's still much more is, um, you know, the beans getting sent somewhere else to be processed. Um, with that said, I do think there is getting to be a little bit more awareness for the producers. I mean, we certainly on all of our bars try to say who, where did we get the beans from and how are they involved? Um, and you saw that a little bit with um, like Chuao was an, an origin that got kind of popular for a while that got some marketing around it. People have also kind of tried to market the sort of um, genetic varietal of like, you know, these are Criollo beans. And so, you know, so people are always trying to market one thing or another. And I think for the most part, like the, the farms themselves haven't gotten a lot of marketing, but we've tried to make it very prominent as to who they are. And you'll often see that a lot of small makers in America are often using the same beans. So one of the most interesting things to do is, for instance, um, buy up a lot of Madagascar bars from American makers, because almost all of them are coming from uh, Bertil Ackeson's farm. And oftentimes they're the exact same lot because we actually imported them and then sold them to other makers. And so it's really fun to try like 10 different bars where you know it's the exact same lot of beans, but it's really the maker. Um, you're seeing their sort of unique style come out. And so I think then people are learning like, oh, I really like the Madagascar origin in general, or I really like, you know, Camino Verde, Ecuador. So that's kind of starting to happen a little bit. Um, and then the last question was really about fair trade. I think with fair trade, um, if you actually go to a farm and talk to a farmer, at least the ones I've talked to don't like fair trade. They think it's kind of a scam, honestly, because it's just sort of a way to get your rubber stamp on a, on, a, on a bunch of beans. And it's not a statement of quality. It's not really doing a lot for them. So in our case, we don't, we don't actually um, certify any of our beans fair trade. We instead publish a report every year with who from the company visited the farm, how much did we pay for it, what was the supply chain, how much did the farmers get, all the sort of particulars and sort of an effort for radical transparency, where we just put all the information out there. And what we found is as we visit other farms, we've actually had farmers come to us and say, oh, I read your sourcing report, so I've changed my pricing and I've changed how I do things. And so we kind of feel like that's a better approach than the sort of fair trade approach. Tim, what's your perspective on this idea? And I think that one of the things that we, we didn't talk about, it's kind of related to this, would be the kind of similar in terms of wine is like AOC or DOC, having kind of named terroir labels for specific chocolates or coffee. Do you see, I mean, that's separate from farmer, 
but do you see that kind of thing happening in the in the in the coffee world yeah i mean we have seen some of those kind of brands uh, being created in, at origin like in colombia they have it there there's marcala in honduras they have it but uh you know for me that's more for like uh, commercial coffee uh, because you can kind of say that yeah in Huila in colombia it has a general profile of being very soft and blah 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 but you know in Huila in colombia there's probably 50,000 farms or something like that and although most of them are actually growing more or less the same varieties it's castillo variedad colombia and captura a lot of the farmers now at least uh, the more progressive ones are planting you know crazy varieties like geisha and java and trying to find new varieties so i think that kind of denomination of origin uh, doesn't serve a purpose for the higher quality products um but I, I do see a lot of similarities in coffee with wine because we have kind of been inspired by the wine world. And, you know, we do have some famous farms already. Uh, one good example is the Hacienda La Esmeralda in Panama, which, you know, has broken price records on auctions year after year after year for their exceptional quality. And because it's exceptional quality, you know, they have won the competitions because uh, judges have come down to taste the coffees blindly and they tend to win the competition or come second place year after year. So, and now they have their own auction, you know? So uh, we do see a lot of similarities, but unfortunately uh, just to take Colombia as an example, I think they have above 550,000 individual farmers and maybe less than 10,000 are able to sell directly to roasters, you know? Uh, most of it that coffee is blended and, and just and sold like a commodity for, for a very low price. So I think we have a long way to go uh, when it comes to championing the farmer. And, and that's what we're kind of trying to do with our company. And a lot of coffee companies are trying to put the variety on the package, who produced it, where is it from, you know, why does it taste like this? We're trying to tell the story, but I also realized for an end consumer, that story can be quite similar from coffee to coffee, you know. So but I think that that story is like, I mean, it's kind of interesting, as you said, you want to spend less time making your coffee and more time drinking your coffee. I think there's yeah. an interesting thing to do while you're spending your time drinking your coffee is this kind of immersive experience, which is, I love the fact that I can actually sit down and read about what, where I'm, what I'm drinking and where it comes from and, and who produced it. Um, yeah. And you, pro you provide that. And then Todd, um, I love your little booklet that comes with your new uh, collection of, of chocolate. And I can sit down and I can read about each individual bar and each individual producer. And it's, it's actually really fun to actually just kind of immerse myself and almost have this literary quality to the, the eating experience. And it makes it, I mean, I don't think you necessarily get that when you're sitting down to a, a meal at a restaurant. It's just really nice to, uh, get a sense from uh, from you guys what you guys intended while i'm experiencing the product and so please keep on with those stories um they don't sound the same um you guys put a lot of effort into uh into telling them um we're as a consumer we're interested thank you we're running short on time i ha we have two more questions and then i kind of have like to have some closing thoughts an interesting question here, and I actually don't know uh, what is the fertilization process of uh, coffee beans or coffee berries and, and flowers and um, 
cocoa um, or cacao beans. But um, honeybees, um, are honeybees a, a large player in fertilization? Are they self-fertilized? What's the story on uh, your two plants? I can start on that because it's quite a short answer, <laughs> if that's okay. Coffee is a, well, Arabica coffee is a self-pollinating plant. So according to some research done, uh, I think you know, about 3% of the pollination is done by bees. Uh, but I also know a guy who is researching bees and its effect on uh, many different crops. And he's doing some research on coffee as well. And uh, they're saying like there's indications that you know the beans get bigger and and the fruit better if they get pollinated by bees. So I, you know I believe in bees as being a big resource for a coffee farm, not just for the coffee trees, but there's other plants uh, and weeds and everything around. So I really want to. I actually have a couple of beehives that I want to set up on my own farm and want to encourage all the farmers that I work with to start investing in in uh, in protecting the bees because bees are more than just honeybees you know there there are many many thousands of different pollinators that we need to protect so stopping you know spraying uh, fungicides and pesticides is is one of the things that we are trying to focus on um todd yeah, um, Your perspective? Uh, short, short answer as well. Uh, I actually don't know. I th uh, so cocoa, uh, so cacao is pollinated by the cocoa midge. Um, it's a special sort of insect. So, but I actually, I don't know to the extent at which um, honeybees can also, like if, if there's some percentage. So I'd have to figure it, I'd have to look, I'd have to ask Greg basically. But it has um, its majority it's own insect that is a pollinator. Yeah, and so I, it's a good question. I don't know if that's like like exclusive or a percentage, but um, I'll, I will try to find that out. So we have one last question, which I think actually we've answered in terms of price transparency. I think that um, I, your producer report, production report, I think is really interesting in the level of transparency you get into, uh, Todd, um, with uh, your producers. Um, do you do anything like that, Tim, in terms of talking about your farmers, where you get your coffee, kind of your, your, your producer price model? Um, and you actually, the, the fair trade thing is something that we didn't actually get into in terms yeah. of your answer. Yeah, no, uh, we try to publish, or we do publish every year, a transparency report where we, we list all the coffees we bought, how much we bought, for what price. Now we're also saying, you know, the price paid, we call FOB, which is free on board on the boat. That doesn't tell you how much the farmer was paid. So we're also putting the, what the farmer was paid on the report now. And, uh, you know, this, I we, what, just publishing a report like that doesn't really tell the whole story because trading coffee is more complex than just, you know, an Excel spreadsheet with numbers. So you kind of have to explain, you know, we need an exporter to move the coffee. We need a miller to prepare the coffee for export. We need a logistics company. And all of these companies needs to get paid as well. It's not like they're robbing the farmer of money. Like those are services that we need as a company in Norway to move the coffee from Colombia to Norway, for instance. But uh, we, we work with people that are willing to give, you know, all the numbers on the table and say, okay, we pay this for milling and this for transport. And this is how much the farmer gets paid. And, of course, we communicate with the farmers. Like most of these, most of the farmers that I work directly with, we're very good friends. Um, some of them I've just met, so I can't really say that already. But um, 
in Central America and Colombia, you know, I've, I've known them for over 10 years and we communicate through WhatsApp. And if they're not happy, you know, I'm not happy because if they don't want to supply me, I, I get disappointed. So, uh, you know, if, if, if none of them are certified fair trade, like we don't care, we pay a much higher price anyway. And uh, I know that it works because I can see that they take the money and invest it in their farms and in their kids and in their lives and improve the farms. And because of that, you also improve the quality. And a very good example of how kind of we in our kind of side of the world, we think, oh, if I just pay more for the coffee, the farmer is just going to start buying better processing equipment, you know, expanding his drying facilities or so on. But, uh, you know, in most of the most of the cases, the number one thing for them is to, you know, get a better kitchen so they can feed all the workers on the farm, getting better dormitories for the workers who come and sleep on the farm. You know, there's so many other things that they need to improve before they can start doing, you know, the processing more. thing. So, so yeah. for me, it's kind of been, uh, 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 I, I'm an impatient guy, so I want the product to improve, you know, today. So we have actually been, paying a, a much higher price than the market price for these kind of high quality coffees for a, for a while, just to kind of get kick-started or jump-started uh, into that process. Nice. And that kind of pays off in the end, I think, because it also enables them to put more resource into development. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I can see it now that in five years, my coffees are going to be amazing because I, I know what's in the pipeline and what's coming stuff that we have planted, you know, it takes five years for a new variety to even start to producing a proper, a proper uh, yields. So I know that it's coming. It's just, I don't see it right now in, in the cup today, but I, I know it's coming. So for me, that's the most kind of best indicator that what we are doing is actually working. And we don't need, you know, fair trade for me, is more like a system for commodity uh, so that a big roaster can say, hey, hey, we are doing paying a fair price, <laughs> which yeah. often can be below cost, uh, the cost of production to be, to be straight. This has been a, an amazing time. I'd love to just like kind of end out. Do you guys have any final comments that you'd like to, to make? Any closing thoughts? I think, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's been a fun uh, webinar because I, I have known for many years that uh, coffee and cocoa has so many similarities. I just didn't know that you know, you could basically just copy and paste Todd's answers and put it into my, <laughs> into my story. It's so similar, you know? So uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun for me to, to be part of this. Todd, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, yeah, well, I mean, this has been awesome. And I think that just as a parting thought, I think this is kind of one of the most interesting times for chocolate in the last hundred years. And in many ways, I think that chocolate's going through the transformation that coffee went through, but maybe... I don't know if we're 20 years behind, 15 years. Like, I don't know exactly how far behind we are, but it's kind of interesting to see these parallels. And I'm sure if this panel were to happen in 10 years in the future, maybe the chocolate answers would be more like the coffee answers. Or, you know, it's definitely kind of following the same path. So it's really, it's really nice to see how those two overlap. You guys do an incredible job. And this has been an incredible time uh, talking with both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website at shack15.com.